Welcome to the 19th webinar for the MJHS Institute Interprofessional Webinar Series. I'm Laura Dingra. I'm the Director for Health Disparities and Outcomes Research at the MJHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care. The title of my talk is Pain Assessment and Cultural Diversity. I have no disclosures. So my objectives today are first to describe the general elements of culturally effective care. And the reasons for this are based on several factors. As you know, the U.S. population is becoming increasingly diverse and is aging. Palliative care must be able to deliver high quality pain and symptom care that addresses the unique cultural needs of both patients and their families. In order to do this, there's a need for us to improve our approaches to pain assessment for diverse populations with advanced medical illness. As we study factors that relate to race, to ethnicity, to culture, to socioeconomic status, to gender, to spirituality, religion, and other characteristics, we begin to understand that these factors can have a major influence on how people appraise their pain, interpret their pain symptoms, and express their pain. These factors, in turn, can affect how healthcare providers assess and manage pain. So a better understanding of these factors may help you as providers better engage your patients and their families in more efforts to have shared treatment planning and shared decision making. As we study these factors, it's important to note that we may find that there are more similarities than differences across diverse groups. However, specific sociocultural influences can play a profound role on access to pain care and pain assessment and treatment. One of the things that's important to note is that the evidence from the research literature shows that there are many differences in the quality of pain care that racial and ethnic minority groups receive, as well as individuals from non-majority cultures. And this is particularly troubling. Therefore, my second objective is to discuss barriers from the literature to the provision of culturally competent pain assessment. This will include evidence to suggest that there are three sets of factors that may affect pain assessment patient and family-related factors, provider-related factors, and system-related factors. Finally, I'll review some clinical strategies that you as healthcare providers can consider incorporating into your own clinical practice for pain assessment in diverse populations. This will also include a review of several translated, validated measurement tools for pain assessment that you can incorporate uh, because they are relatively brief. So there have been various definitions and models that have been proposed to describe culturally effective care. One conceptual model includes two key components, cultural sensitivity and cultural competence. Cultural sensitivity includes both attitudes and respect. Attitudes involve perceptions, either positive or negative, that a healthcare provider may have towards a certain group. Relatedly, do we as healthcare providers demonstrate behaviors that are consistent with having a non-judgmental attitude? Do we understand potential differences across different cultures? And do we respect these? 
cultural competence involves the knowledge and skills that are needed to bring about positive outcomes in cross-cultural encounters with patients and their families. Now, there are two frameworks for describing the approach to cultural competence, a generic framework and a specific framework. A generic framework suggests that a general set of knowledge and skills can be applied to patients and to specific communities across different groups. Therefore, the key here is just to maintain a sense of openness towards other cultures. In contrast, a specific framework suggests that there are too many variations within different cultural groups and among these groups to apply a general approach. Instead, it proposes that knowledge and skills are best applied to patients and communities from specific cultural backgrounds when these are tailored to their unique characteristics. So it's important to keep in mind that there is no right or wrong approach in terms of a generic framework or a specific framework, but that these are just different ways of thinking about cultural competence. So cultural sensitivity involves an awareness and insight towards how culture may shape patients' values, their belief systems, and their worldviews. It involves understanding potential differences and respecting them. Cultural competence involves the knowledge and the skills that providers need that have the potential to obtain more positive outcomes in cross-cultural encounters. Well, what are the benefits of culturally effective care? We know that the provision of culturally effective care is consistent with patient-centered care. A better understanding by providers of culture-specific values and beliefs in patients and their families may help them promote more effective pain assessment and management in diverse populations. And the knowledge and sensitivity that healthcare providers have of specific cultural issues have the potential to prevent cross-cultural conflicts or to address or minimize patient mistrust and enhance treatment adherence. But despite this, there's numerous studies from the empirical literature that have shown that racial and ethnic minority groups have significantly poorer pain outcomes and greater disparities in pain care. And this includes differences in pain epidemiology, access to care, pain experience, and pain treatment-related outcomes. These disparities are profound, and they've been shown in many different populations. For example, research by Dr. Karen Anderson and colleagues and other researchers shows that Caucasian patients are more likely to be prescribed more potent analgesics, including opioids, compared to Asian American, African American, and Hispanic patients with the same pain syndrome. This is particularly troubling because we know that there are important racial and ethnic differences in the experience of both experimental and clinical pain that have been well documented in the literature. For example, Dr. Burl Gooden and his colleagues at the University of Alabama at Birmingham have observed greater sensitivity to experimental pain among African Americans and Hispanics compared to non-Hispanic whites. And this is consistent with other research that shows that both pain severity and disability are greater among African American and Hispanic populations compared to non-Hispanic whites. 
So while the reasons for this potential difference are beyond the scope of this presentation, perceived discrimination has been proposed as one potential mechanism that explains this difference. For example, Dr. Gooden and his colleagues observed that a greater frequency of lifetime racial and ethnic discrimination, as perceived by the patient, predicted lower heat pain tolerance among African Americans, but not for non-Hispanic whites. So I want to shift now and talk about different barriers that may affect multicultural pain assessment. This includes patient and family-related factors, provider-related factors, and system-related factors. Among these three factors, the one that's received the most research attention to date involves patient-related factors. So language differences and communication problems between patients and provider can be a major barrier to effective pain assessment. We know that this is a challenge, and it's particularly so because you can't always have health professionals who speak the same language as the patient. However, even if a medical translator is available, many words in one language don't easily translate into another. It's important to note that communication challenges can include both linguistic and nonverbal differences. For example, the research suggests that among African American populations and some Asian American populations, that direct eye contact can be perceived as non-essential or as disrespectful. We had a case of a Chinese American woman who was Mandarin speaking only. She was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and she was experiencing extreme chronic pain and breakthrough pain. She was hospitalized and she had expressed a preference for her oldest son to make all of the decisions on her behalf. The team decided that uh, her pain would best be managed with a PCA pump. So when reviewing the instructions, the nurse specifically asked the son that it was important for him to not press the control button on the pump. That even if he felt tempted to press the button, his mother was alert and capable of doing this. The son's response was to nod and smile, and he remained silent. The next day, the nurse walked into the hospital room and the son was observed pressing the control button on the pump for his mother. So it's important to keep in mind that among some Asian American populations, it is customary to shy away from saying no in order to avoid offending others, especially those who may be perceived to be in a position of authority. So healthcare providers should be aware that nodding does not necessarily indicate agreement or understanding uh, of the treatment plan or the explanation that's provided. I think the context here is also important to comment on. Medical decision-making in traditional Chinese culture is often oriented towards family-based decision-making processes. The highest role in the family hierarchy is usually held by the father or the oldest son. We explored some of these issues with the son, and it revealed that he was particularly troubled. He was very worried about watching his mother, and he was fearful of her dying in severe pain. He felt as though it was his duty to press the button on the pump. This may relate to larger issues of filial piety, 
where Asian American patients may feel responsibility to protect their, pa their family members. When we explored this more, it tapped into larger concerns that he was experiencing. He was deeply conflicted. He was worried about watching his mother be in severe pain and what he perceived to be was her inadequate analgesia and balancing this with the nurse's instructions. He also felt responsibility for caring for his mother since his father had died. In terms of other issues that can affect the use of common tools for pain measurement, uh, one issue that I want to point out is that the numeric rating scale, which is widely used and very common for pain measurement, may not be uh, completely uh, understandable by patients for, of certain groups. For example, uh, Native Americans may choose a favorite or a sacred number when asked to rate their pain instead of rating their actual pain experience. And this has been shown across Native Americans from different tribes in the research literature. In our own cancer pain study with the Chinese American population in New York City's Chinatown, we have found that the numeric rating scale may be confusing to monolingual Chinese-speaking patients. Chinese characters are usually read vertically, so we often have to explain to patients that the scale needs to be read from left to right so that they can see how the numbers indicate greater pain severity. Acculturation can also be a powerful influence on pain assessment. Acculturation represents the extent to which immigrants assimilate and accept the norms, customs, and values of dominant Western culture. The research literature shows that less acculturated patients have a higher risk for unrelieved pain. There are many different ways to measure acculturation. Uh, acculturation can be measured in terms of linguistic acculturation. So in our research uh, with the Chinese American community, we have measured acculturation to the English language by asking patients to report how much they read, speak, or think in Chinese versus English. In our research, we found that patients who reported they were more likely to read, speak, or think in English also reported higher levels of pain. So while we didn't try to test or measure what the potential mechanism was here to explain this finding, one potential explanation that we hypothesize is that the process of acculturation may in some way help patients become more open or more willing to talk about their pain. Acculturation can influence the patient's appraisal of their pain, their pain expression, and their desire for treatment. Another factor that's important to consider is the role of stoicism. For example, in research with African-American pain patients, the findings reveal that they, they often shared beliefs that they should be strong and not rely on pain medications. There was a sense among patients that pain should be a private experience, and being stoic or withholding emotion would prevent their family from worrying and being burdened. This is often seen in other cultural groups as well as uh, non-minority patients as well. However, they have been found, these beliefs, to be more frequent among racial and ethnic minority populations. 
Another example involves that of Chinese traditional culture, which is heavily influenced by Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhist elements. These belief systems favor a minimizing attitude towards pain. Men in particular may be socialized from childhood not to display pain publicly because this can be perceived as a sign of weakness. So according to Confucian philosophy, preserving social harmony is essential. Positive or negative displays of emotion, if these are very extreme, are discouraged and are minimized. It's better to remain balanced. So these perceptions can reinforce patients' openness or willingness to communicate pain despite the distress that they're experiencing. So stoicism can impede the patient's pain report as well as the clinician's ability to assess it. One important issue that's important uh, for us to review is the potential for how minorities and members of marginalized groups may be viewed and how they in turn view healthcare providers and the healthcare system. A historical mistrust of the healthcare system and healthcare providers among certain groups who've been subjected to medical abuses may contribute to misconceptions about the use of conventional pain treatment, may relate to fears about using these treatments, and the lack of willingness to disclose pain due to the reluctance to use conventional pain care. For example, the research literature suggests that Asian American and African American and Hispanic patients are more likely than Caucasians to feel that they should have been referred to a pain medicine specialist earlier and believe that patients' race and ethnicity as well as their gender influence access to pain care. Several studies have also shown that African American and Hispanic patients have more concerns about taking potent analgesics, including opioids, because they fear that they may become addicted, develop tolerance, or experience intolerable side effects. Again, this may be true of patients from non-minority populations as well, but these beliefs tend to be more frequently reported among minority groups. So while this also may present an opportunity for patient education about the use of pain treatments and their safety and efficacy, as well as the provider's ability to flexibly manage side effects, um, they can, these conflicts can be compounded by medical mistrust. Beliefs uh, about Western medicine are also important to explore as many patients may have preferences for complementary and alternative approaches. We found this in our work with the ethnic Chinese immigrant population in which the research has shown that 20% of patients with moderate to severe cancer pain are using complementary and alternative medical therapies. And this includes the use of Chinese herbal remedies, Tai Chi, acupuncture, and they're using these strategies either alone or in conjunction with opioids and non-opioid analgesics. Again, I want to point out that these concerns may be true regardless of a patient's race or ethnicity. Shame and stigma of illness is another important construct. In certain cultures, some diseases and symptoms are looked upon negatively. In traditional Indian culture, the belief system is heavily influenced by Hindu philosophy. There can be many superstitious thoughts about pain. For example, 
an untimely death or a painful death may be considered the result of some past wrongdoing or misdeed. The research shows that Asian American and African American patients may consider specific diseases like cancer to be taboo, and this may cause them shame. Patients may feel stigmatized because of their disease. This may cause them to be reluctant to communicate or express their pain symptoms out of this shame or fear. Family influences are also an important factor. We know that in some cultures, families can play a prominent role in pain care decisions and treatment. Uh, in our work with the Chinese American population, for example, we found that patients' concerns about using opioid analgesics for cancer pain was often characterized by their family's concerns. If the family was reluctant for the patient to use this medication, to use an opioid, then in most cases the patient didn't want to use it. And this has been confirmed in the literature. In some cases, patients may fear that disclosing pain will be a burden to their loved ones or their family members, and they don't want to cause them this worry and concern. So this can certainly impede their disclosure of pain. Another important factor involves religious and spiritual beliefs. Oftentimes, this has been characterized in the literature by fatalism. There are two uh, specific ways of conceptualizing fatalism in the literature, disease-specific fatalism and religious fatalism. Disease-specific fatalism is the belief that pain is an inevitable part of the disease and attempts to control it are futile. Religious fatalism is the belief that pain should be endured for spiritual purposes. For example, in the literature, the research shows that Hispanic patients have reporting that suffering from pain is a part of life that needs to be endured, and this may have a redemptive value. Pain may be a way to get closer to God. Certainly, fatalism can influence patients' pain expression, the meaning of the pain, and their desire for treatment. We've also found that within the Chinese-American community and within other Asian-American cultures that the belief systems may be heavily influenced by Confucian elements, Taoist elements, and Buddhist elements, which emphasize that if a person can emotionally detach from their pain and not become distressed by it, they may undergo tremendous spiritual and personal growth. So in the clinical scenario, Fatalism may pertain to beliefs that serious illness and pain are predestined. They're not changeable, and pain management is not likely to change the future outcome, even if the intention of healthcare providers are good. The next set of factors involves provider-related factors, and this includes provider attitudes, beliefs, and knowledge about pain. So regardless of a patient's racial or ethnic background or their cultural characteristics, provider competency to effectively assess and manage pain using best practice strategies contributes to the quality of pain care. Many clinicians, however, have reported that they lack knowledge and satisfaction with their pain care skills and their ability to provide culturally competent care to an increasingly diverse society. This may be related in part to providers' limited knowledge of patients' cultural practices and beliefs. For example, clinically, a patient may be perceived by a provider as being fatal, as being um, non-adherent or being resistant or lacking engagement, not taking an active role in self-managing their pain. But in fact, 
this patient may be displaying attitudes and behaviors that are consistent with fatalism. Among some Asian American groups, asking for help may be considered a sign of disrespect. For example, asking a nurse or a healthcare provider for pain medication may be viewed as taking that healthcare provider away from their more important duties. There may be an implicit expectation that a provider will know when to provide medication for the patient and asking isn't necessary. The research also shows that among African American populations, patients often do not want to be labeled as complainers or as bad patients. They don't want to distract their healthcare providers from treating the disease. They often have many fears and concerns that pain means that their illness is progressing. So this can inhibit patients from discussing pain and affect providers' ability to assess it. In addition, stereotype thinking and bias can affect pain assessment. These involve provider beliefs about patients' racial or cultural or religious characteristics that can influence how providers evaluate patients. For example, a survey by Dr. Van Rin and colleagues showed that physicians' perceptions of patients are often influenced heavily by patients' ethnicity. These included the bias that minority patients were more likely to be at risk for non-adherence and potential opioid misuse compared to non-minority patients. And these results are very troubling because they are not supported by the evidence. So these beliefs have the potential to be damaging. And more research is needed to understand and investigate how bias can contribute to potential inequities in pain assessment and treatment so that we can change this. It's true that stereotyped thinking involves categorical representations. And it can be a method or a way for people to organize lots of information or make sense of people. However, the danger is that when these stereotypes are applied globally, we may fail to take in important information that disconfirms them. So another potential barrier involves the role of ethnocentrism. And this is the tendency to view the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors, and cultural norms that don't match our own as incorrect or abnormal or inferior or wrong. You may want to ask yourself, Look back to a case when a patient reacted to pain or expressed their pain in a way that didn't match your own values or beliefs or pursued a treatment strategy that you didn't feel you agreed with based on your own background. How many times have you maybe felt that this was inappropriate or even frustrating? Ethno-relativity involves the ability to honor and respect another's cultural values and beliefs even if it doesn't fit with your own. So related to this is a need for healthcare providers to develop more self-awareness. And this requires some introspection into their own values and beliefs. How many times have you asked yourself, which of my attitudes are culturally based and which are empirically proven based on the evidence? It's important to recognize our biases and not let them unconsciously guide our practice. I want to point out that the research on stereotyped thinking and bias has been shown to occur even in healthcare providers that are deeply, deeply opposed to discrimination. So these things seem to be operating at an unconscious level in many cases. The third set of factors that I'd like to discuss 
involve system-related factors that can affect pain assessment. For example, facilities may want to apply a general or one-size-fits-all approach to care. Provider lack of time for multicultural pain assessment can be a formidable barrier, particularly when the patient-to-provider ratio is high. In the past, there's been a lack of multi-language instruments that have been translated in different languages that providers can use to assess pain. Fortunately, several of these tools are now available and can be incorporated into your clinical practice. I'm going to talk about three of these tools, the Wong Baker Faces Scale, the Brief Pain Inventory Short Form, and the Condensed Memorial Symptom Assessment Scale. So these have the potential to improve pain assessment and pain management because they can improve communication between patients and providers and overcome some of the, of the linguistic barriers to pain assessment. So most of you are aware of the Wong-Baker Faces Scale, already use this in your practice. It's now available in 50 different languages. It was initially developed for pediatric populations, but it's since been validated in multiple adult populations, including groups over 60 years old. And it can be very helpful for patients who are verbal or who have language problems or other cognitive difficulties. There's a series of six progressively distressed faces, and the patient chooses the face that best represents their current pain severity. Across the literature, the Wong-Baker Faces Scale is rated as the most favored scale by patients because it's the easiest one for them to use. The Brief Pain Inventory Short Form is well-validated and widely used. It's psychometrically and linguistically validated in 24 different languages to date. This includes Arabic, Chinese, Spanish, German, French. It's a 15-item self-report measure, so the patient completes this him or herself, and it evaluates different pain-related features. Pain-related severity is assessed using four items. This includes pain at its worst, pain at its least, pain on average in the past 24 hours or in the past week. It also asks the patient to rate their pain right now. The responses range from zero, no pain, to 10, pain as bad as you can imagine. Another important feature of this scale is that it also rates pain's impact on function across seven different domains of living. And this includes mood, sleep, enjoyment, social relations, walking ability. These items are also rated from 0 to 10, with 0 representing does not interfere and 10 representing completely interferes. The Brief Pain Inventory also assesses other characteristics, like the location of the pain and the quality of the pain. It also rates treatments for pain that have been used in the past 24 hours and the perceived relief from these treatments on a scale from 0% relief to 100% relief. The Condensed Memorial Symptom Assessment Scale is also one that you can consider using in your practice. It's based on the original long version, the Memorial Symptom Assessment Scale, that was developed by Dr. Portnoy and colleagues. It's currently available in two languages, English and Chinese, and it's a 14-item self-report measure. A unique feature of this tool is that it assesses both physical and psychological symptoms that the patients experienced in the past week. So you can see the symptoms here on your screen. They, the tool assesses both pain and non-pain symptoms. 
and the patient is asked to rate the presence or absence of each symptom. If a symptom is present, they then rate the symptom in terms of its distress to them on a five-point scale that ranges from zero, not at all, to four, very much. So here you see the tool in Chinese, and you can see that it's brief enough to use in your clinical practice. So in terms of some clinical strategies that might assist healthcare providers in culturally relevant pain assessment, a first starting point may be to consider identifying who the primary decision maker is in the family and who's the family spokesperson. It can be helpful to assess patients and families' expectations for communication. For example, do they prefer a family-based model of communication or a patient-based model of communication? It can be useful to assess the patient's and the family's perceptions of the pain. What do they perceive as the cause of pain? What does this pain mean to them? How do they interpret it? As well as assessing the acculturation level of the patient and each caregiver. It can be useful to provide a safe space for bringing up uncomfortable topics. For example, patients may have specific fears and anxieties about discussing pain, particularly if their disease is progressing. This can be done by saying, I have a difficult topic to discuss with you. Would you mind if we talked about it? So in this way, legitimizing and validating pain control as a goal of medical and psychosocial care, as a way of bringing this up, a patient is being fatalistic, for example, about using a pain intervention. You can present the pain intervention as a means to help the patient fulfill their family role or their social roles. Healthcare providers can strive for clear comprehension among patients and families about the pain care they're going to receive and consistent explanations as much as possible across providers. Also giving treatment recommendations in writing can be useful and the use of language tools that match the patient and the family are strongly recommended. Healthcare providers should acknowledge the potential for side effects and ensure that these will be dealt with in a flexible way. For example, by changing the dose of the medication or trying a different medication. So it's important to address fears of an overly aggressive medical system. For example, inquire about and, if appropriate, accept the use of complementary and alternative medical therapies for pain. Express respect for the patient, family, and their cultural traditions when communicating. It can be helpful to express some interest or some understanding or knowledge of the patient's and family's cultural background. This can be done by uh, many different ways and certainly educating yourself can be very powerful. Doing this can provide some common ground with patients and their families. It can help establish rapport and it can also help patients feel comfortable about bringing up potentially uncomfortable topics like the use of complementary and alternative therapies or concerns about the use of certain medications. Ensuring open-ended communication to balance pain care needs with culturally specific issues such as closure and hope, maintaining respect is vital. So in summary, minorities have significantly poorer pain outcomes and greater disparities in pain care. Culturally effective care includes both provider competence and sensitivity. 
patient and family, provider, and system-related barriers may impede pain communication, assessment, and management. Cultural assessment includes a better understanding of patients' values and beliefs, their perceptions about the pain, and their treatment preferences. Strong communication skills are key, demonstrating empathy, active listening, and an understanding of patients can help provide care that's really consistent with their preferences. I want to acknowledge the contributions of Jack Chen and Dr. Karen Richards, who assisted with this presentation. And we now have some time for questions. So if you have your questions, feel free to submit them. I see we already have some questions here. And I'll also give you a moment to collect your thoughts. So um, one question that has come up a couple of times is, what are some of the most prevalent symptoms that cancer patients have? Uh, that's an excellent question. So uh, the literature suggests that pain and fatigue, um, sleep disturbance, often cluster together in patients and may have a reciprocal relationship. There's research to suggest that uh, the most distressing symptoms that patients report include lack of energy uh, or fatigue or dry mouth. And we've confirmed this uh, in our own research uh, within the Chinese American community. And it's consistent with the majority culture uh, uh, with racial and ethnic groups from other cultures as well. Someone asked, can you please elaborate more on uh, the difference between cultural competency and sensitivity? Um, so that's a great question. You know, they're related. However, it's true that um, you know, someone may have uh, cultural competence, but they may not be culturally sensitive. Um, so cultural competence really involves the knowledge and skills that are required to bring about positive outcomes in cross-cultural encounters with patients and families across different groups. Cultural sensitivity involves the attitudes and the respect that a health provider has. Um, do they have an awareness of how potential differences uh, can affect patients, and do they respect these differences? So another question that has come up is, one of my Chinese-American patients was suffering from severe pain. She refused any use of analgesics, including opioids, based on her cultural beliefs. So that's an excellent issue to bring up. And I'd be curious to know how you encountered this. You know, what can be helpful is trying to get a better understanding of what the specific barriers are. What are the thoughts and reasons that patients have for their reluctance to use, let's say in this case, an opioid analgesic? Um, you know, if you can try to better understand this and not be judgmental about it, um, you then can try to maybe negotiate with the patient and let them know that there are some other strategies that are available and that if they're willing to try those with you and give them a chance and give you a chance to work with them, you may be able to better help them uh, improve their um, analgesic um, response and reduce their disability from pain. Um, it's important to not note that among um, some of the Chinese-American population, and we've uh, found this a lot in our research, uh, for patients who have a preference for herbal therapy uh, to treat their pain, um, this can be concerning. Um, 
many of the patients in the Chinatown community that we've been working with as part of our American Cancer Society supported grant um, have been ordering herbs um, from the back of newspapers and magazines uh, from China. And some of these uh, herbal remedies, uh, they're not, most of them are not tested and we're not sure if they're safe. Uh, they have the potential to be adulterated with toxic metals or with other drugs and um, this can be particularly concerning. So again, it's important to explore the use of these types of strategies and make sure that you're working with patients to show that it's in their best interest for them to consider some other options um, if they aren't safe. Um, <clears throat> so another question that somebody has is, how do I offer support or an intervention for a patient and a family who demonstrates disease-specific or religious fatalism? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it's important, I think, to take a step back and explore with the, with the patient uh, where these fatalistic beliefs are coming from and why they hold such value to them. Um, while we can't necessarily change culture or we don't want to change culture, we can certainly let patients know that they don't have to suffer and that there are other options that are available. So we can educate patients about the availability of these strategies. I can see that we have a lot of other questions that are coming up and uh, unfortunately we are out of time. I want to encourage you to email me. Uh, my email address is ldingra at mjhs.org and I also want to remind you that uh, our next webinar will be Family Meetings in Hospice and Palliative Care by Dr. Myra Gleishen. This is going to be July 9th at 1230. And I also want to remind you to please complete your evaluation forms and remember to uh, submit these to us. We take these very seriously and they really help us in planning for future sessions. So thank you very much for your attention.